Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Um, here we are at uh, week number 2, or really week number 15 in our series, looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. I want to spend a moment as we get going again, and just thinking... Um, you know, we live today in view of both what has happened in the past and what is promised, as it were, to happen in the future. We live in light of the past and the future. And so here, looking at Acts, that's our history. It's our family history, the church. And yet there are truths and principles that are not just for the early church, but for the church here in 2019. And so Acts is going to be very useful, relevant, practical, needed in, in looking at our mission today, moving forward in that call to be the church, to, to uh, let our light shine, to proclaim Christ, to encourage one another, to welcome one another, all the things that we talk about often as to why we're here and what we're doing. Have any of you ever experienced déjà vu? Déjà vu, a, a French phrase, a French expression that's made its way into English. Now, of course, literally, already seen. I think most of us have, have uh, had those experiences. Of, Haven't I been here before? Didn't I already meet you? It's déjà vu, already seen. Well, today, we're going to experience some biblical déjà vu. Been there done that. The apostles are experiencing it as well. Uh, just as the healing of the lame man led to their arrest and trial, once again, the miracles that the apostles are performing will lead to the arrest, not just of Peter and Paul, John, but to all of the apostles and put them all on trial. It's, it's similar to what we looked at on week 10 back in May, uh, Acts 4, 1 through 22, but it represents a, an expansion, an escalation of persecution of the church from the outside. We, we, as we'll go through Acts, we'll notice threats from the inside and threats from the outside. And I, I, I think just as uh, when things are repeated in Scripture, when you have similar things happening over and over again, it, it should cause us to say, wow, this is important. What we saw back in Acts 4, we see again in, in a similar way, but it's expanded and it's escalated that we see here in Acts 5. So here we are in our series, our look at all that Jesus continued to do and teach now by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by Him through the apostles. Remember last week, verses 12 through 16 of Acts 5, a dynamic church. And what were the two dynamics that were happening? Well, people were staying out of the church and people were coming into the church. People were both being, as it were, they were respectful, but they were repelled by the church and others were, were drawn in. It's like the aroma of Jesus is the aroma to, of death to some, but of life to others. And I hope this dynamic church, this recognition that the gospel will both 
push away as well as draw in will keep us hopeful and encouraged as we operate in the midst of a dynamic environment. Join with me now as I read verses 17 through 32 of Acts 5. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Well, if you had to pick one line from this lengthy passage, one line that's memorable, one line that's memorizable, what would it be? I think probably all of us would would choose the verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. Kids, You can just memorize it right now. In fact, you probably memorize it faster than your parents. We must obey God rather than men. And so we're going to use this statement, this verse 29 statement, to orient our passage. As we travel through our passage, we'll see that obeying God rather than men, first of all, can get you into trouble. Secondly, can frustrate others around you. And thirdly, can bring glory to God. First, obeying God can get you into trouble. Obeying God can get you into trouble. Look, the apostles are arrested and they're put into prison by the Sadducees. And that's no surprise because they had been told not to teach and here they are teaching. They're arrested. Now, who are these Sadducees, the political leaders of the day? They're also now the religious leaders and they're ruling. We saw that in chapter 
four. Uh, it's kind of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Council, the Senate, all these expressions of, of the leadership of Israel. Now, why are they arrested? Well, there's jealousy. They're jealous. More about that in a minute. Um, the Sadducees in particular, as you may know, as you are familiar with the gospel accounts, they, they reject the uh, doctrine of the resurrection. That's why Jesus, in encountering the Sadducees, once said, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. And interestingly, they denied the existence of angels. And that's somewhat ironic because what we see here is this narrative account of uh, an angel being used by God to rescue his apostles. Notice that Luke includes this detail of a public prison because the apostles are being attempted to being publicly humiliated before people. You know, Jesus was crucified not off in a corner. To be sure, it was outside the city, but it was public. He was subject to public humiliation. And here, the apostles themselves, as they're following Jesus, are subject to public humiliation. They're arrested, and yet they're released by an angel of the Lord. It's not the angel of the Lord that we read elsewhere where we, it might be a pre-incarnate manifestation of, of Jesus, the Son. But here it's an angel, a, a messenger who's acting as a spokesman for God, who's acting on God's behalf. They, they are released but if you were listening to the narrative account, they are not released to just go off and enjoy personal safety. But rather, they are released to engage in riskier obedience. Did you hear that? Do we want to be healed from our disease so we can just live a comfortable life? Or do we want to be healed so that we can return to service, return to being useful? Are we seeking to get out of a hard situation so we can just rest and relax? Or are we seeking to get out of something difficult so that we can serve with more freedom? Here, they are released, but not just so they can enjoy personal safety, but they're released so that they can engage in even riskier obedience. God is teaching the apostles that he can deliver them as he sees fit. It's his sovereign choice. The, the apostles, as it were, are saying, as the psalmist would say, Lord, my life is in your hands. Because when we get to the section of Acts when Paul is in prison, Paul is in prison for a long time. And yet God is sovereign over Paul's life as he is sovereign over the apostles here, life. They are not only being divinely delivered, but they are being divinely commissioned to stand in the temple and speak, to teach. The temple, the place where God had chosen to make himself known to Israel, the center of the religious life of Israel. And they're commanded to speak. More than speak, they're commanded to teach. How many times did we hear the word teach? Three times. They're told to do exactly what the Jewish officials were forbidding. They were to teach all the words of this life. Notice in most of your translations, this life might be capitalized. This, 
unique life that God provides through Jesus. Through His salvation, He provides eternal life. Jesus Himself says He's the bread of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The apostles would know exactly what is being referred to when the angel says to speak of this life. Think with me for a moment about teaching. The truth of the gospel doesn't come naturally to any of us, right? Children, what comes naturally to us? To disobey, to sin, to run from God. The truth of the gospel doesn't come naturally. That's why had we chosen to sing, Speak, O Lord, as our hymn of preparation, we would have sung verse 2, which says, Speak, Teach us, Lord, true obedience. Teach us, Lord, full obedience. See, full obedience doesn't come naturally to any of us. It, we, are to be, we are to be taught. Taught. Notice that that hymn actually says, teach us, Lord, full obedience. It could have said, teach me full obedience. It teach us. And, and that's what's so great about this passage it says we must obey God it's it's the church it's not just individual Christians I must and you must no it's we must teach us Lord full obedience here the 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 apostles are going to be obedient they're going to be men of courage of principle boldness look at back at verse 29 of chapter 4 what did they pray for they prayed for boldness and God is answering that prayer they're telling people the truth about Jesus if you look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4 where we read this but Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God you must judge For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's Peter and John saying, we've got to obey God rather than men. And here they say it directly. Here is the practical demonstration of what they had earlier been convinced of. To obey God rather than men. Well, not only can obeying God rather than men get you into trouble, as we see the apostles are in trouble, as it were, it can also frustrate others around you. In this case, they are frustrating to the Jewish ruling council, to the Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin. So let's look at verses 21, the second half through 28. The council and these these leaders, they're jealous And they're not jealous for God's honor or for the advancement of His kingdom, but they're rather jealous for what our own politicians are jealous for, to retain their own influence and power, which they realize is now being threatened. They are resentful, envious, distressed, afraid. They are irritated at the success of the church. If you had to simplify their motive into one word, it's jealousy, a raging jealousy. Not only are they jealous, but they are perplexed. They're they're wondering. And and here Luke, the author, enjoys the humor of the council waiting, but not knowing. They're the rulers, and yet they don't know. They don't realize at first that they've got a problem. And then they're at a loss over what is happening. When they learn their whereabouts, they have the escaped apostles brought back, and yet they were fearful of the people, and so they did not bring them back by force. 
The disciples, the apostles have learned the lesson from Jesus to not respond violently, but rather to respond, as it were, cooperatively up to the point where it's the time of decision. Again, the Sanhedrin who could pronounce stoning are themselves now afraid of being stoned by the people. Could you imagine being with Luke as he's putting together this detailed account of the ongoing ministry of Jesus, just weaving the narrative, seeing the big picture, seeing the details, seeing God at work and God orchestrating everything for the advancement of his kingdom for the gospel. The news that they get is not encouraging, and so they return to their tactics, as they've demonstrated in the past, of interrogation and intimidation. It didn't work the first time, but maybe it will the second time. They tell them, you have disobeyed our orders. We strictly charged you not to teach. But instead, they say, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, but it's actually Jesus' teaching that is filling Jerusalem. And here's the third one. They're, they're, they're saying that they've been pronounced guilty of Jesus' death. They're in a tight spot. They're under the conviction, interestingly. The ones that are accusing are now being accused by what is being taught. Obeying God can bring trouble upon you, can frustrate others around you. But obeying God rather than men can also bring glory to God. Have you noticed that when on trial, the apostles are not defending themselves, but they're rather lifting up Christ? Look with me beginning in verse 29, as we see God being glorified through this. Peter speaks up with and for the apostles. His opening statement here is reminiscent of his closing statement that you heard a few moments ago from chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. In that trial... It was his closing statement. In this trial, it's the opening statement. You see, he's beginning where he ended last time. And his answer is simple and short and easy to memorize. We must obey God rather than men. In other words, the command of God takes precedence over human commands. Look with me at how his answer begins with obedience and his answer ends with obedience to God. To obey God is necessary. It literally starts and it ends to those who obey him. The Sanhedrin would be very familiar with the scriptures of the Old Testament. They would be familiar with Daniel 3 that we heard read where... Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were to be tossed into the fiery furnace, but they had confidence that if God decided to deliver them, he would. If not, he wouldn't, but they would not serve. They would not bow down. They would not worship. It was the first commandment that they were going to keep, and they did. So this was not new to the Jewish leaders. Both Peter and Paul in the New Testament speak of rightfully respecting 
the authorities, rightfully submitting to the authorities, but they also speak of a rightful civil disobedience. John Stott says this, since the state's authority has been delegated to it by God, we are to submit to it right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve disobedience to God. And here's the principle at work. When men forbid what God has commanded or command what God has forbidden, we don't have options. You know, the thing, you go down the aisle in the grocery store, the cereal aisle, and it's what? Option after option after option. And you think there's two options here, right? To obey God or to disobey God. To obey men or to disobey men. But really, the principle is there's only one option for the believer. To obey God. And John the Apostle, in both his gospel and in his letters, ties in what with obedience? Love God, obey God. The one who has his commandments and keeps them is the one who loves him. Love and obedience are wedded together in the gospel accounts. Now, this principle can be abused. All of us, I think, are tempted to not obey the civil law, not in order to please God, but rather to please ourselves. Think about it. Are we not obeying the civil law because we want to obey God? If that's the case, if there's a clear demarcation in what the civil authorities are saying is going to be disobedience to God, then by all means, obey God. But I think it's a convenient excuse for many of us at times. I don't want to do that. We're not trying to please God. We're trying to please ourselves. God knows our heart. Go before Him. Ask Him for help. And again, this opportunity to be released, to secure release, is not to just go back and hang out with one another, but it's rather to proclaim a message. And what message is it? It's the same old, same old message. It's the gospel. At chapter 2 at Pentecost, it was the death and resurrection of Jesus. At the healing in chapter 3, it was the death and resurrection of Jesus. Before the council in chapter 4, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the same old, same old. It's all about Jesus, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. And that God has raised an exalted leader, Jesus, as leader and Savior, as Prince and Savior. In other words, as ruler, as King, and the one who saves. You'd think now that we would start to get it, that Christianity is a message, and the gospel is a message of good news of what God has done. You see it over and over and over and over again. My friends, I hope when you hear the gospel over and over and over again, you don't just write it off. You don't just think, I've heard that. I don't need to hear it. My friends, so long as we're walking by faith and not by sight, we need to hear over and over again the message that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. You see, when they are proclaiming the gospel here, it is both an indictment, but it's also an invitation. You see, the accused, once again, 
become the accuser. You killed, but God. And here is the offer of forgiveness to the very people once again who had killed. Therefore, there remains the opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness. To repent and to receive forgiveness. We were thinking about uh, that as we looked at John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. You know, weighed down with conviction of sin, burden, and yet the burden can be lifted. And God will mysteriously and sovereignly lift the burden off the backs. And here is that offer of forgiveness, offer of repentance. And indeed, it is a double gift. Did you notice how it spoke to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins? Reminds me, of our shorter catechism's definition of what is repentance unto life. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Here is the offer of the gift of repentance. Repentance unto life. The message that the apostles are proclaiming. And he wraps up this proclamation with the witness of the Holy Spirit that directs and confirms the testimony of the apostles. And so we've seen here in these verses what happens when you, in this case the apostles, obey God rather than men. You can get into trouble You can frustrate others around you, and yet, you can also bring glory to God. And I was struggling with, should we use the word can? Or should we rather say, you will get into trouble. You will frustrate others. You will bring glory to God. Now, as we head toward a conclusion... I think it's important to remember a few things. First, here we see once again that the gospel is opposed. And who's it being opposed by? First and foremost, these religious leaders who upon examination, you find that it's a man-made religion. Because God does have a true religion that is revealed. But the gospel is opposed first and foremost here by those who adhere to a man-made religion. But secondly, the gospel is defended, first and foremost, by those who are given spirit-empowered boldness. If you think the apostles weren't in and of themselves scared, frightened, sleepless, anxious, worried, and yet they have the Holy Spirit. They are given spirit-empowered boldness. God has answered their prayers. And thirdly, although the gospel is overcome, although it's defended, even though it's opposed, it cannot be overcome. There always is and always will be opposition to the church and the gospel. From the outside as we see here and from the inside as well. The church 
Christians will be persecuted, but not crushed. There will always be a remnant. There will always be those who haven't yet, as it were, to quote the Old Testament, bowed the knee to Baal. There will always be those who cling to the promises of God. Christians may be arrested. And if you're following the news today, Christians are often arrested in places like China, North Korea, and other countries. They may be arrested, but nothing will be able to stop the advance of the gospel. You see, people who have received and arrested in Christ alone for salvation as He's offered in the gospel are living proof of the unstoppable power of the gospel. You know, if this passage could be in a picture book, it might look like this. The Sanhedrin, the ruling council, wanted the apostles in prison. But Christ wanted them in the temple preaching the gospel to the people. So where were the apostles found? Not in prison, but in the temple proclaiming the gospel. So let's ask ourselves this question. How are we doing when it comes to obeying God and not men? How are you doing when you face the choice of rather to, rather, whether to obey God or not? You know, the cultural air we breathe is a constant, unceasing call to obey man rather than God, especially when it comes to talking about Jesus. Because, you see, spirituality is okay. Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. The only way people come into a right relationship with God is through Jesus. That is not okay with many. It was interesting in the introduction to the hymn, Rob spoke of, of who are we listening to? Reminds me of a, a song by a Kentucky singer-songwriter that says this, Two voices are calling out to you. You're serving the one you're listening to. You see, two voices are calling out. God's voice through His Word or man's voice through the Word. And we're serving the one we're listening to. You see, the apostles, they're desiring to obey God above all else because they knew the one who saved them. They knew him. They saw him. They heard him. And we do as well by faith. They obeyed and we obey not to become right with God, but rather because through the unbelievable good news of justification by faith, we are declared right with God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. My friends, the, the apostles, what do we see? We see that they love him. They've counted the cost and Jesus is worth it. So are you discouraged right now? You know, I think report cards are coming out in about a month, right? I grew up with A to F. You know, outstanding, excellent, F, flunking, failing. You didn't want an F. How are you doing? 
I mean, if you had to assign yourself a letter grade, what would it be? My friends, whatever letter grade you assigned yourself, remember, there is only one man who obeyed God and not man at all times and at all costs. Jesus obeyed God rather than men, both friends who said, don't go to the cross, as well as enemies. As we see when he was tempted in the wilderness, when he was before religious leaders, Jesus obeyed his Father rather than men at all times and at all costs. You see, my friends, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, we're called to obey God rather than men, but our obedience does not save us. Jesus' obedience saves us. And faith in Him and love for Him will cause us more and more individually and as families and as a church to realize that the cost of obeying God and not men is worth it. Yes, it'll get us into trouble. Yes, it will frustrate others around us. But oh yes, it will bring glory. God our Father. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this narrative account of your apostles' faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. And we see, Father, through these words, your hand upon them, how you rescued them, not to ensure that they have a comfortable life, but you rescued them so that they could continue on with your purposes. Oh, Father, may that be true for us as well. May we not just memorize these words, but may we see this truth that we must obey you rather than men, something that will be greatly pleasing to you and greatly helpful to one another. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we walk-